Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. And if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. I am no longer in that isolated cabin in the woods. I'm now at my friends Sandy and Jonica's house in Los Angeles, California. I was very careful getting here. I used different credit cards at the gas stations and like wore gloves and everything. So uh, I'm here working on a circus show with my friend Jonica. And uh, hopefully someday you all get to see it. But for now, uh, I'm going to be a little more loosey-goosey with some of the things on this episode just because I've spent way too much time sitting in front of the computer the last couple of weeks uh, writing my term papers for the end of the quarter. So, um, yeah, uh, in terms of the current zeitgeist, look, this moment feels like an especially overwhelming one in an already overwhelming year. I'm acknowledging that right up front. I created this podcast as a place where you could come and get away from that. It may seem like sticking your head in the sand, but to quote G.K. Chesterton, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. I think it's important to remember that something that may seem unrelated may end up giving you insight into something different, perhaps years later. In my late teens, I read Anansi Boys by Neil Gaiman. Gaiman? Let's go with Gaiman, Neil Gaiman. It was only when I was about three quarters of the way through that I realized the protagonist was black. It was a startling moment for me because through the book, I received an insight into my own views of the world. I had pictured the character as looking white, like me. Rereading the book years later, I found this confusion a bit laughable, but at the time, it was a moment of revelation. As an aside, I commented on this to a friend, and she thinks it's an intentional choice in Gaiman's writing, but there you go. I wrote a couple of weeks ago that you never know what tools you'll get from what books, or which pieces of art. I think that's doubly true right now. Broaden your horizons, and change your assumptions, my friends. But don't forget to take care of yourselves. It's dark out there. I'll close with this opening, uh, I'll close this opening with a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien. Fantasy is escapist, and that is its glory. If a soldier is imprisoned by the enemy, don't we consider it his duty to escape? If we value the freedom of mind and soul, if we're partisans of liberty, then it's our plain duty to escape, and to take as many people with us as we can. Okay, deep breath. Let's do a show. Strangely recommends, in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? The Inheritance Trilogy by N.K. Jemison. Speaking of mind-altering fantasy, this book series eschews careful world-building for a kaleidoscopic emotional journey. While the overall landscape of this world of vengeful gods and playful sprites may seem disorienting at first, that ends up being part of its charm. To describe the overall plot or even aspects of the world would spoil the joy of discovery these books hold. It is rare to find a fantasy book that does not owe vast amounts of its world building to Tolkien. While Jemison's work is not as layered or deep as Tolkien's, neither is it leaning on him the way authors like George R. R. Martin, Robert Jordan, or J.K. Rowling for that matter do. 
These are the author's first books, but the growth over their run is wonderful. And by the time it all reaches a satisfying conclusion, you'll want more. Jemison is an interesting voice in the fantasy landscape, at once thoughtful, meditative, erotic, heartbreaking, and thrilling. Movie Club. Uh, this is just a reminder that the next episode I will be talking about Dragon Slayer from 1981. Uh, yeah, so watch it if you want to know what we're all talking about. It's on Amazon, and uh, have fun. <laughs> This is a new segment uh, that I'm going to be calling Something Academic, or something like that. Uh, essentially, sometimes I write things for school, and I think they're kind of fun, and so I decided I would share them with you folks. Uh, I took a course this past quarter called 2,000 Years of Irish History, and this was the second paper I wrote for it. Uh, this paper is called Land of Songs, Colon, Music in Irish Culture. In 2015, with less than $200 to my name, I cycled across Ireland with my accordion. The instrument was my salvation, as music proved the key to establishing contact with people across the country, sharing songs and stories in the steamy kitchens, drafty manners, and close pubs of Ireland I found the crack. While the literal definition of this Irish word is somewhat nebulous, the meaning is not. Crack is the good times one finds when sharing amusement with friends and family. Needless to say, with an accordion and a keen ear for traditional music, friends were easy to come by. It was only years later that I realized I had just dipped my toe into a musical tradition stretching back into Ireland's murky pre-Christian past. Outsider appreciation for this aspect of Irish culture is nothing new. For over a thousand years, visitors have been remarking on the prominence of music in Ireland. In his 12th century Topographia Hibernia, Gerald of Wales notes, it is only the case of musical instruments that I find any commendable diligence in the people. They seem to me to be incomparably more skilled in these than any other people I have seen. The compliment is rendered all the more spectacular by the fact that Gerald, Gerald, considered them, quote, devoted only to laziness and so barbarous that they cannot be said to have any culture. The music must have been remarkable indeed for Gerald to put aside his vitriol long enough to comment upon it. It is surprising that Gerald would impinge the Irish lack of culture while in almost the same breath praising the richness of their music. One would not be hard-pressed to make the argument that music is the Irish culture. Thomas O'Crowan's memoir, The Islandman, includes a description of a typical Irish gathering. The reader will note the prominent place of music. Quote, a gentleman came on a visit to the island soon after the breakup of the dancing school, and he started all sorts of merrymaking. Barrett was his name. He had food and drink of every kind, cold, hot, and boiled. He brought eight bottles of whiskey with him and a variety of other drinks as well. It was a question who should sing him the first song, for they were shy till they saw that he had a good bottle of whiskey to give to the first singer. They needed no pressure then, even those who hadn't sung a song for seven years or couldn't sing at all. It was the same story with the dancing, and the lilters got their glass too. The old women and aged men danced also. I was half tipsy most of the time, for the old women and young girls would keep leading me out, and I was a fine dancer in those days. My father could dance, and he had been teaching me before the dancing master came. The old women in particular took me out on the floor with them, and so I came home half seas over every night all that week. If any of them had any rest, I hadn't, 
for I was dancing and singing and lilting turn and turn about. I was a clever fellow in those days. When even those who, quote, hadn't sung a song for seven years or couldn't sing at all are moved to participate, it amply demonstrates the importance of music to a community. Even childhood rec recollections are infused with song for O'Croen. Describing a perilous incident in his youth that almost claims the life of his mother, O'Croen recalls, I was in high spirits now that I'd got my mother again, singing Dono Nagrain. At another point in his childhood, he almost loses his hand in a fishing accident, but as he recovers, quote, I was singing Dono Nagrain at once. It is little wonder that song would be so present in O'Croen's life, as amusements were few in rural 19th century Ireland let alone on a remote archipelago three miles off the coast of the Dingle Peninsula. The societal love of music is at least a thousand years old, present in medieval accounts of attempts to save the souls of the Irish. Adamnan's biography of St. Columba mentions the exceptional quality of the saint's singing voice on numerous occasions. Quote, Regarding the voice of the blessed man in singing the Psalms, the venerable man, when singing in the church with the brethren, raised his voice so wonderfully that it was sometimes heard four furlongs off. That is, five hundred paces, and sometimes eight furlongs, that is, one thousand paces. But what is stranger still, in those who were with him in the church, his voice did not seem louder than that of others, and yet, at the same time, persons more than a mile away heard it so distinctly that they could not mark, they could mark each syllable of the verses he was singing, for his voice sounded the same, whether far or near. The supernatural quality of this voice perfectly encapsulates the need for musical prowess in one seeking to lead the Irish. By detailing Columba's prodigious musical talents, Adamnan makes the case for Columba as one qualified to lead by example. Elsewhere, Adamnan writes of the singing of hymns as a martial action, almost possessed of mystical shielding powers. Since most medieval manuscripts were compiled by agents of the church, their narratives often seek a synthesis between traditional Irish practices and the newer Christian infusions. Although the latter are given pride of place, the overall tone is one of co-option rather than outright replacement. By aligning their Christian heroes with the artistic values of Ireland, these narratives create storied legitimacy. A Calamna Sinarach, a 12th century collection of tales, is one such narrative. The saga portrays the last warriors of the Fionn newly meeting, <clears throat> sorry, meeting a newly arrived St. Patrick and telling him the tales of their adventures. Patrick, while maintaining proper Christian decorum, respectfully listens to their stories and prompts his scribe to write them down. In the course of the narrative, it transpires that water is required. Patrick obliges. There is difficulty, said the King of Connaught, that no water is nearby. If it be the will of the Lord, said Patrick, water will be here. Patrick went off toward a prominent rock that he saw in the distance, singing a prayer over it. He thrust his staff into the rock, penetrating both gravel and bedrock, and three streams of clear water sprang up. This is reminiscent of Adamnan's account of St. Columba performing a similar miracle. The saint turned aside to a rock that was near and, kneeling down, prayed for a short time. Then, rising up after his prayer, he blessed the face of the rock, from which there immediately gushed out an abundant stream of water. This in turn, of course, harkens back to the prominent water from a rock miracle performed by the patriarch Moses in the Bible. <clears throat> and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod and assemble the people together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak to the rock before them, and it shall yield waters. 
And when thou hast brought forth water out of the rock, all the multitude and their cattle shall drink. Moses therefore took the rod which was before the Lord, as he had commanded him, and having gathered together the multitude before the rock, he said to them, Hear ye, rebellious and incredulous, can we bring you forth water out of this rock? And when Moses had lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with the rod, there came forth water in great abundance, so that the people and their cattle drank. The reader will notice that, though the exact details of the story change over time, the consistent thread is one of water from a rock. Each successive telling includes touches which complement their own day or enhance the image of the figure being represented. The Moses account presents a man who does not follow God's exact instructions, angrily striking the rock with his staff. In contrast, Columba remains calm, speaking to the rock and succeeding in producing the desired element. Patrick's miracle combines elements of the two preceding accounts while also adding the touch of music. I should note that even though Patrick as a historical figure predates uh, St. Columba, the uh, particular Akalamna Sinarach uh, stories of Patrick weren't written down until much later uh, after St. Columba. They, they postdate St. Columba by about 500 years. So uh, that's why Patrick is a later account, even though he's an earlier historical figure. Where was I in this? Ah, both Irish versions also include notation that the springings in question stand as contemporary reminders of the stories they result from. What was, quote, the Hill of Kings is now called the Spring of Garad, just as Columbus Spring is seen even to this day, a well called by the name of St. Columba. In 2007, introduce, in his 2007 introduction to Tanbokulinia, Siren Carson notes the locative potential of songs and stories. Although the most recent extant copies of the Toyn dated to the 12th century, it is likely a work derived from earlier written texts and oral traditions. Carson writes of going on a journey with folk performer Paddy Tunney, who, quote, passing by otherwise unremarkable farmsteads or small hedgy fields or stretches of bog, by this lake or that river or wellhead, he would relate their history, lilt an accompanying reel or jig, or sing snatches of the songs that sprang from that source, and tell stories of the remarkable characters who once dwelt there. Carson sees a parallel in the narrative of the Toyn, with its fantastical explanations for the eponymous histories of mundane natural features such as Bent Tree Ford or Medibee's Pisspot. This kind of locative storytelling, which Place, with places serving as signposts to stories is associated with Ireland, yet not exclusive to it. Carson's account of Tunney is startlingly evocative of Bruce Chatwin's The Song Lines, a narrative exploration of Australian Aboriginal culture and its songs. In theory, at least, this is a quote from uh, The Song Lines, in theory, at least, the whole of Australia could be read as a musical score. There was hardly a rock or creek in the country that could not or had not been sung. One could perhaps visualize the song lines as a spaghetti of Iliads and Odysseys writhing this way and that, in which every episode was readable in terms of geology. And here's another quote. The man who went walkabout was making a ritual journey. He trod in the footprints of his ancestor. He sang the ancestor's stanzas without changing a word or note, and so recreated the creation. Aborigines could not believe the country existed until they could sing and see it just as in the dream time the country had not existed until the ancestors sang it. Chatwin argues that legends can be more than metaphysical or spiritual. They could be maps. 
This belies the apparent simplicity of the seemingly whimsical tales of pre-modern cultures while simultaneously indicating a utility in what are usually regarded as lighthearted pastimes. By imbuing the land with the locative keys to the songs and stories of the past, the residents of the land strengthen their connection to it. This utility and the connection it provides to the physical place is rendered martial in Dan Breen's My Fight for Irish Freedom, a memoir of Irish resistance to the British occupation. Quote, Martin Savage fell into my arms, fatally wounded. Poor chap. How lightheartedly he had been singing and reciting poems about Ireland and the glory of dying for one's country as we rode out to Ashton only an hour ago. The conflation of Irish patriotism with musical expression is further pressed by the participation of even less than talented individuals in traditional songs. Quote, he liked to sing an Irish song as we went through the fields. His favorite was Arose de Batha, Arose de Batha Bale. I'm probably totally butchering that, my apologies. But he had not a note of music, and his singing of Wearing o' the Green did not sound differently from The West's Awake. His monotone never varied. One is reminded here of O'Croen's neighbors who couldn't sing at all. Arosa de Bathabale, a song traditionally associated with weddings, becomes an act of resistance in its rejection of the English language. One cannot help but connect this to Breen's own wedding, itself an act of resistance. All through the evening, the boys and girls of the neighborhood took part in the dancing and singing, as though no war was being fought. Our outposts remained on the alert, while reliefs taken over so that all might share in the merriment. Even while the boys danced, their guns were close at hand. We had grown used to the war. British terrorism could not kill the spirit of the people. Breen makes it clear that the greatest expression of the spirit of the people is the pursuit of singing and dancing, shared by all. This desire for freedom is a desire to pursue this communal communi creativity in peace. Irish songs are stories which hold a culture of oral tradition. A song, or a poem, is easily remembered as it has tune and rhythm, making it an ideal transmission vehicle. This is particularly true since music occupies separate parts of the human mind much less vulnerable to the ravages of age. During my own sojourn in Ireland, accordion in tow, I saw this principle in action. When I stopped at small, out-of-the-way farmhouses, the whole village would just happen to stop by. Many of these folks were in their 70s, 80s, or even 90s, but most of them remained active and knew more songs than I could ever hope to learn. In much the same fashion as Thomas O'Crowan's community, we shared the whiskey and sang the songs, finding that community which only music can form. That is to say, the crack. Hokey fright. Have you heard about Live and Let Die? This 1973 film was Roger Moore's first outing as James Bond. It features Bond's first black love interest, a theme song written by Paul and Linda McCarthy, McCartney, not McCarthy, whoo, that'd be a different song, and performed by Wings. And there's a henchman with a robot arm, and also there's a supernatural, oh, okay, wait, let me back up a bit. I should explain my history with James Bond. James Bond is a fascinating franchise, in much the same way as Star's Trek and Wars, or Spider-Man. It has reached a level of cultural ubiquity wherein even my non-media savvy mother can explain the basic mechanics of it. Even if you've never seen a JB film, you still know he's a suave British super spy who drinks martinis, does insane stunts, and sleeps with all the women. Okay, maybe not all the women. There was this ninja chick this one time who... Wait, did I actually dream that? Never mind. 
It's a cultural landmark, but what makes this fascinating to me is that even fans of Jimmy's Adventures would be the first to admit that the very that very few of the 25-ish movies are good. Don't get me wrong, they're a pile of fun in the sun with a fresh 100% beef frank on a bun, son. Okay, I'm done. So fun. But, no, James Bond fan... No James Bond fan I've ever talked to seems to argue that they are quality films with big ideas. I mean, granted, some of the recent Craig films have reached toward greatness, and I've heard some pretty convincing arguments defending other entries, but if that's the case, then they're the exception that proves the rule. These movies never push the envelope. They have a tendency to be a kind of mirror held up to reflect the cinematic landscape that surrounds them. For instance, Casino Royale hit the scene during the gritty reboot era of the mid-aughts, and then Spectre suddenly turned the tangled threads of the previous three films into an interconnected cinematic universe. I know Bond films have had their connections before, but Spectre feels like a conscious choice to push toward MCU territory. Even the hints thrown in about 009 and Moneypenny maybe doing fieldwork again, or maybe not, it, it's all spin-off possibilities. So, we're left with close to 60 years of continuously produced films, all featuring the same basic premise. Some bad guys are up to hijinks, and James Bond, British super spy, is going to stop them. I've never quite understood the phenomenon where Bond fans identify the films as the one where, or the one with. If you've ever talked to a James Bond fan, the phrase must have appeared. You know, it's the one where he goes to space, or the one where the helicopter has a giant chainsaw hanging out the bottom for trimming trees, or the one with the Komodo dragon, or the one with a woman named Christmas Jones. What the? <sighs> Still makes me mad every time I think about that. You, you get the idea. I've always been the kind of film viewer that remembers the plot of a film and can quote bits of it from memory and so on. I rarely pick out a film for a single stunt or detail because I generally remember the whole thing. I've always been confused by people who seem to come away from a cinematic experience with only one or maybe a couple of things to hold on to. Well, except Rise of Skywalker. That movie had great music and... Um... Yeah. Have you seen Rise of Skywalker? You know... The one where only the music was good? Oh, now I'm depressed. Where was I? Bond. James. Uh, Bond. Having seen Live and Let Die, I now understand this phenomenon fully. This is deeply the one where. Although, the best part about that is, this movie has about six of those that would make most other films. I almost don't want to spoil any of them, but I'm going to tell you about one because even if it's described, you're still going to find it hard to credit. When this movie started rolling, I was somewhat surprised by the sheer amount of black actors. I don't mind people of any color in my films. Indeed, I've always found it weird when fans of genre films, who seem perfectly happy with bright blue Andorians or some adjacent nonsense, but then they get uppity about a larger than normal quotient of people of normal color at least according to them. It just doesn't scan, but that's a discussion for another day. Anyway, there are loads of black people in this movie. The villains are black, their henchmen are black, there's a fight with a black actor uh, on a train. Like, if you've seen the movie, you know it's the one with the rad fight on the train. And so on. It was honestly refreshing and exciting to see a James Bond film that wasn't so... 
white. That decided to go to 70s Harlem, Trinidad, etc., and portray those places as full of people who are not white. It's cool. It's different. I mean, I'm not saying any of the things that happened in any of those places were any good. It's still a James Bond film with all the sensitivity of a T-Rex in a dollhouse-sized china shop, but even so, it's different. I mean, this movie is in a series of movies known for being over-the-top, and it might just be the most over-the-top one I've ever seen. Like, how over-the-top? Well, okay. I told you it has lots of black people in it, and the sensitivity level of a Cat 430F2IT being used as a prosthetic for a six-year-old who just drank 11 espressos. So... <clears throat> There's no dancing around this. The bad guys are into voodoo. Yeah, real voodoo. Like, tying people to posts with snakes and Baron Samity as a character and just... Damn. It's nuts, okay? It's insensitive and nuts, and it's... Quote, the one where the villain gets all his intel from a woman named, quote, Solitaire, unquote, who reads the future in tarot cards, unquote. I wish I was making this up. I just... Oh, God. But still, none of that is the craziest thing about this film. I already mentioned the somewhat more diverse cast than usual for a James Bond film before or since, and after I finished watching it, I looked this up, and it's... This James Bond movie was trying to chase the black exploitation wave in the early 70s. After the success of movies like Shaft, Superfly, and Across 110th Street, the MGM suits and uh, Broccoli were like... By the way, Broccoli is the actual last name of the guy who produces all the James Bond movies. Albert Broccoli. Look it up. It's ridiculous. Uh, the MGM suits and Broccoli were like, we want some of that sweet, sweet moolah. So that solves at least one mystery. Decades before Quentin Tarantino, James Bond tried to jump on the black experience bandwagon. And the results are... not great. And yet, that still isn't the most insane thing about this movie, in my opinion. Okay, I keep dancing around this, so I'm just going to come out and say it. This is the one where he does the alligator stunt. I've heard about this for years. In fact, I might have already seen it on YouTube at some point, but to have it happen in context was glorious. This movie is already the most bug nuts thing I've seen in years, and then and then here we are. Bond is stuck on an island in the middle of a lake full of alligators. And how does our suave super spy escape? He waits until some swimming gators are in a line and then he runs across their backs to safety on shore. It's insane. It's laughable. It defies the laws of physics. It's... Hang on. Let me... It's... All real. He... He, he actually does it. I just... Like, I still... I, I just... I mean, I... I uh. So... Apparently, the producers were driving around looking for filming locations in Florida, and they saw a sign that said, Trespassers will be eaten. When your name is Broccoli, and you just feel entitled to everything, you naturally make your way up to the house in question and knock on the door. Enter Ross Kananga. This dude was involved in only three films in his life, including this one. He was always credited as, as a stuntman. He owned a gator farm, and IMDb tells me he was a Gemini. So, after Broccoli met him, Ross agreed to let them film at his gator farm, and at some point someone came up with a stunt, and Ross did it. 
What you see in the final film is his sixth attempt. Sixth attempt. He messed up five times and had to be rescued from his own gators. Until finally he ran across their freaking backs to the shore. Like, to add insult to injury, Ross wore shoes made out of gator skin. I just, I can't even wrap my head around this stunt. Who comes up with something so Looney Tunes and then makes it happen? Look, all I'm saying is Tom Cruise may actually go to space in the next Mission Impossible film, but Ross Kananga ran across the backs of a bunch of alligators like he was playing bloody hopscotch. Look, this film is problematic for days. There are things I wish I could unsee that I saw in this film, but I will never forget the time I watched Live and Let Die. You know, the one with the alligator hopscotch stunt. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week, Alligator Purses. This is my setting of a popular jump rope rhyme, and after that alligator stunt rant that I just read to you, I figured this was appropriate. So here's a quick and dirty fun times recording of Alligator Purses. Here you go. <laughs> Doctor, 
doctor, and I went to nurse out with the lady with the alligator purse. Resolution update. Number one, read Moby Dick. I'm about a quarter of the way through, and Ahab has just appeared. The overall narrative structure of this book is so different than I would have expected based on the understanding of it I had via cultural osmosis. I would honestly not be surprised if Ichabod Crane were to just show up, establishing a crossover universe, because all media has to cross over, right? <laughs> Number two, learn to understand my carbon footprint. This is difficult right now, but I've started growing my own basil. And when I move into my new place up in Bellingham in July, I'm going to look into more ways that I can produce my own food, so stay tuned on that. Number three, Finnish lessons. I'm still plugging along. Uh, here's this week's word in Finnish. Uh, the word is book, and it is kirja. Kirja. That's book in Finnish. Number four, quit streaming stuff. I'll have some thoughts on this next week. I'm kind of in a period of transitional thought about a lot of internet things right now, and I want to write this up as sort of a longer thing, so stay tuned for that. Number five, make at least 36 episodes of this podcast. Okay, I've produced eight, so that's uh, 25%. Yay! Number six, read 52 books. I've read 42 books now, so I'm way ahead of the curve here. 50 word movie reviews. Sorry to bother you. If you missed this gem from Boots Riley back in 2018, do yourself a favor. Watch it. Lakeith Stanfeld and Tessa Thompson are some of the best actors around, and they're on fire here. This film has some deep thoughts in mind, but it's not afraid to make you laugh harder than you think possible. Mailbag. I'm going to be back in Bellingham very soon, so send mail to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. Also, in light of current regulations in some places, I'll be relaxing my communication style to include email and Patreon messages, so you don't have to worry about leaving the house to stay in touch. You can send emails to strangely.dusberg at gmail.com, so it's S-T-R-A-N-G-E-L-Y dot D-O-E-S-B-U-R-G at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Hello, everybody. That about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I am boiling. I was trying to record all over the house, and I finally crammed myself into this little closet I think it's about 90, 95 degrees in here right now. I'm going to go out of the closet, lay on the floor, and turn on the air conditioner again. Uh, so, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Deucebark. The podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon. You can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of whatever this is. My executive producer patrons are Kim Truitt and Tina Jones. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production. Thanks for listening. I hope wherever you are in the world this week, you're somewhere safe and have a comfortable temperature. And I also hope that at least one good thing happened today, because if at least one good thing happened, then it's not all bad. 
Oh, Drat, I'm supposed to end that instead of the joke. Uh, okay, well, here's my favorite sentence that I've read in Moby Dick so far. Quote, It seemed hardly possible that by such comparatively small mouthfuls he could keep up the vitality diffused through so broad, baronial, and superb a person. In other words, he eats like a bird, but he's a beast. <laughs> anyway, have a good week, everybody. Thank you.